All right, Colossians chapter number 4, verse number 7, Paul says this, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hands of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you. Amen. Now, in these closing verses, Paul gives a roll call of faithful individuals who are standing by him in this his hour of imprisonment. And you might ask yourself, you know, preacher, what really can we glean from these names? But you'll find as we peruse this list that uh, both in the specific details of these individuals, their life and, and their testimony, their legacy, each one of them is not just a name on a piece of paper. They're a living, breathing person with a life that was lived, with sorrows, with uh, victories, with rejoicing, with heartaches, with, uh, you know, character traits and personalities. Every one of them, to some degree or another, they left an imprint upon this world. And so I would just merely suggest this to us tonight, and I don't believe anybody is taking these names or these verses lightly, but knowing that it is uh, most certainly the propensity of the human spirit as we read through these, go, oh yeah, okay, he's just going through and naming names. If the Holy Ghost thought it was important enough to put them in there, we ought to take the time to give careful consideration to each of these names. But I would ask you this, why did Paul himself include these names in this list? Now, some of them, like, for instance, him mentioning Epaphras. Epaphras, of course, was very likely the pastor at the church at Colossae. He's not going to be returning from his voyage. And Paul wants to send salutations uh, by way of his messengers. And, in fact, his messengers, Tychicus and uh, Onesimus, both of them have important histories with the Apostle Paul. Onesimus, in particular, is going to feature largely later on uh, this evening in our study. So there's some practical reasons. But also, too, I think there is a comprehensive reason that Paul lists these names. Because you've got to remember, this little church at Colossae is surrounded by these infiltrators of of cultism and these purveyors and and peddlers of false doctrine. And, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes there are, are times that the battle is hot. There are times that the world just looms large. And it's easy to sometimes begin to feel like you're alone. And to feel like, man, there's just a a precious few of us 
that are standing for the truth, that are serving the Lord, that are not yielding to the world, that are not yielding to the flesh, that are not trying to uh, sell cheaply uh, the things that God has given us for the applause of men or for the accolades of this world. And sometimes it's easy to get that Elijah syndrome where you say, I and I only am left. And I think sometimes it's good to just be reminded, hey, listen, we may not be in the majority, but we're sure not alone. There are people out there standing. There are people out there that are living right and doing right and believe what's right. We're not alone in this thing. And I think that as Epaphras comes and he, and he gives a big long list of all the people, no doubt, that are trying to infiltrate and destroy this little church. Before Paul sends this letter back by way of Onesimus and Tychicus, he says, let me give you some names of some people that are standing faithful, at least in the present moment. And it would do us well to just be reminded, it's so easy to get your eyes on those that are falling and failing and walking away, that you miss those whom God is using in a mighty way in your life. Uh, It would do us all good. And really the whole letter of the church at Colossae is an example of this. Paul sits down and takes time to write this church because he had heard of their testimony and he was worried over them. He was concerned for them. He had never met this a group of believers before. He knew some of them just merely by the providential circumstances of life. But he's never been to the church at Colossae. But because they're living for the Lord, he finds encouragement in them. And we ought to sometimes get our eyes off of the people that are walking away. Get our eyes off the people that are giving up and the people that are uh, selling cheaply their, their life in the Lord. And, and we ought to get our eyes on those that are standing strong. And I believe that's part of what Paul's doing as he mentions these believers. Each one of them uh, carries with them a lesson. And you'll find in our notes here that each one of them is given a little title by the commentator. Let's take a moment and look at who these people are. The first is a man by the name of Tychicus. And the commentator describes Tychicus as being the faithful man. Uh, You'll find Tychicus' name uh, several times throughout the New Testament. You'll find that he's mentioned in the companion letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6.21. You'll find that he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 4, whenever Paul is being accompanied on his missionary journey from Ephesus by a group of seven men. Tychicus is one of them. And in fact, the very last epistle that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, as he's awaiting the uh, executioner of Nero, it includes Tychicus' name, or Tychicus was with Paul in that moment. So Tychicus is a man who is found faithful in the Word of God. It It would appear that he was an Ephesian, um, the town of Ephesus was not but about 40 miles away from the town of Colossae and the town of Laodicea and the town of Hierapolis. They were all in this little valley through which a river called the Wolf River flowed. And they were sort of little hamlets out in the countryside. And they were all about 40 miles away from Ephesus, which was a big metropolitan center and was a big place of uh, pagan worship and idolatry. Tychicus was probably an Ephesian saved at Ephesus, and he was a companion of Paul upon his third missionary journey. And he's always seen as being just a, a steady, steadfast, even-keeled individual who's there present with the Apostle Paul. Notice what Paul says about him. He gives two thoughts. He mentions, first off, his character. And he mentions three things that struck him about Tychicus. First, we note his friendship. Paul calls him a beloved brother. This is a a term of of deep intimacy and familiarity and and a a, a sort of kinship of the spirit. In other words, what he's saying about Tychicus is that Tychicus has been a real friend to him. Uh, You know this to be true, especially if you've lived any amount of time on this earth, that if you can have just even a handful of people that you can call your real friends, 
people that are there in your life because they love you. They're not there for what they can get from you, but they're there because they love you. They're interested in you. They care about you. They'll be with you no matter what happens. Then you're a blessed and prospered individual. There's not very many people in this world. We, I think, as Christians sometimes get sort of, uh, uh, you know, callous and, and immune to it. and We get blind to it. You know why? Because the church has given us all fellowship with people that have an interest in our life, not out of what they can get out of us, but because we both know the Lord. And, and there's a spiritual bond and love that we have one for another. So as Christians, we're blessed to have this very often with our church family. But for the average lost person walking around, walking down the street out there, if they can find three people at the end of their life that they can really call their friends, uh, they have really had a charmed life. And to find people that really love you, that are interested in you, that care what you're going through, and people that will be with you, people that you can call a beloved brother or sister in Christ, is a precious thing. He mentions his friendship. He mentions his faithfulness. He calls him a faithful minister. Tychus was a man that did not walk away from the responsibilities that God had given him. It's interesting the great weight that faithfulness carries in the economy of God. We think of ableness as being a very important uh, quality in a person's life, but very rarely is God focused on a person's ability. Rather, He is almost always focused on their availability and their dependability. And Tychicus was a dependable man. You can be the best in the world, but if you're never there to be the best, then it doesn't do any good. I would a lot rather have someone that is faithfully there, even if maybe they have flaws and they're lacking in some ways, than someone that is an absolute spiritual dynamo that can sing the best songs, preach the best sermons, teach the best lessons, that has all the capability in the world, but you never have a clue if they're going to be there. Tychicus was a faithful minister. He was always there. Then he mentions his fellowship. He says he is a fellow servant in the Lord. It, It was high praise for Paul to call someone his peer. That's what a fellow servant means. Paul says, this is a guy that is yoked up beside me and we're laboring in, in, the same, in the same furrow. We're plowing the same ground. We're working the same soil. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's good and everything, but Paul's dead. Well, what does that mean to me? Well, has it ever dawned on you that the Bible calls us fellow laborers with God? What a high honor that could be. If we'll just get involved in the work of God, then we're getting involved in the work with God. We're a fellow laborer, a fellow servant as the Lord is ministering in people's life. So he mentions his character. And then in verse 8, he mentions his commission. He says, whom I have sent unto you. And this is why. He says, for the same purpose. Uh, what does he mean when he says the same purpose? I think for the same reason that Paul's writing. Paul says, I'm writing to you so that I might know what's going on with you and so that I might strengthen you against the assault that is uh, bombarding you from these cultists. And he says, I've sent Tychicus to you. For that same reason. He's my emissary. He's being sent to you for two distinct reasons. The first was to gather information. He says, he sent that he might know your estate. Paul wanted to know what was going on in their life. He had a genuine care and interest in what was taking place. And you can imagine the aged apostle when Tychicus returned to him, as we know later Tychicus did, as he waited with bated breath hearing Tychicus describe, had they read the letter? Had they received the letter? What did things look like whenever he got back there? Had the cultists gained any ground? Had the faithful few stood firm and steadfast? Had there been any great doctrinal battles or or spiritual warfare that had taken place? Paul said, I'm sending him to you because I want to know what's going on in your life. One of the greatest um, expressions of love you can show to someone is to take an interest in their life, an interest in what's going on in their life. One of the quickest ways you can make a friend 
is to be willing to listen to what someone's going through. Paul says, I want to know what's going on in your life. And then the second was to give inspiration. He says, I'm, be, I'm sending him to you that he might comfort your hearts. Paul says, I can't be there. I'm here in chains. And he always has featured at the forefront of his letters and of his writings uh, his, his chains, his bondage, his bonds was oftentimes the language that Paul would use. And when he closes this letter, he asks him, he says, remember my bonds. Paul knows, he's keenly aware that he cannot be there, but he's sending a faithful man that can be there and can in his stead comfort their hearts. So he mentions a man by the name of Tychicus. Now, the next individual is found in verse number 9, and he's traveling with Tychicus. His name is Onesimus. Paul merely here, in this public epistle, calls him a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know there's a lot more to the story of Onesimus. And we'll get to it later on. I'm intentionally sort of glossing over his name because we're going to revisit it when we make the transition here in a few moments to the book of Philemon. But I will merely say this, that Onesimus is traveling with Tychicus, and they both have a letter in hand. This epistle that we're reading right now, Tychicus is carrying, he is Paul's emissary, but Onesimus is carrying a little personal memo written to his master, Philemon, in his pocket. And both of these men go and travel back. It would appear, and we'll say a word about this here in a moment, but it would appear that Epaphras is in bonds now and is not able to return back. And so Paul sends these two men in his stead. And they both, their intention is to make known, verse number 9, unto you all things which are done here. You know, I find that interesting. Uh, I'll just make two quick points here. We see his transformation. He's a beloved brother. But let me say a word about his proclamation. He's going back to tell them what God's doing in Rome. The One of the other epistles written during this time frame in Paul's life is the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians describes vividly how that God is using Paul's bonds under the furtherance of the gospel and that people are being saved. Even in the household of, of Caesar, there are those that have heard the gospel of Christ and responded and accepted the Lord as their Savior. You know, just because we find ourselves limited by certain circumstances in life, that doesn't mean that the Word of God is limited and it doesn't mean that the will of God is limited. Paul was in chains, but he was still serving God. And he sends Onesimus back and he says, I want you to tell them everything that God's doing through the ministry here. They'll be encouraged when they hear about my jail ministry going on here in Rome. So he mentions Onesimus. Verse number 10, he mentions a man by the name of Aristarchus. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Uh, The commentator describes him as the fearless man. He too was Paul's companion uh, on his third missionary journey. And he seems to be one that's always getting into trouble with Paul. He was present in Ephesus when a mob of people uh, rushed him and imprisoned him and would have taken Paul. But Tychicus stood in danger's way so that Paul could escape. And Tychicus was taken by, or not Tychicus, I'll get it here in a second, Aristarchus was taken by this mob and uh, was almost killed. And over and over again, you find him throughout the Word of God being present in Paul's most dangerous moments. Uh, it appears at this moment now, he, he saluted you. You know what that means? He was there with Paul. And it appears that finally his uh, reckless lifestyle of hanging out with Paul had gotten him landed in jail. He's a man that's willing to go to any lengths to serve God. He's a man that's willing to stand in harm's way if that's what it takes to do the work of God. He is a fearless man. I'll tell you this, when we get serious about the work of God, it takes a little bit of courage. It takes a little bit of courage. 
of being willing to withstand evil, to suit up in the armor of God, to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And Aristarchus was a man that knew what it was to stand in the day of battle. Next, Paul lists a man by the name of Marcus. We know him as John Mark. We know him as the penman of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we know him as Barnabas's nephew. We know him as the little boy that was always present at the prayer meetings that happened at his mama's house in Jerusalem. He's a young man who is a Jew who has grown up around the things of God. Uh, my opinion, and this is just opinion, I can't prove this, but I have some pretty good reasons for it if you want to ask me later. But I believe John Mark was probably the young man that followed uh, Christ and the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane and whom in the Gospel of Mark were told that the soldiers, when they saw him, grabbed hold of the linen cloth that he was wearing and, and took it from him and says that he ran away naked after that. And that probably doesn't mean completely nude, but it probably means in his undergarments he ran away and escaped. Uh, Mark was a young man that had grown up around the church, the things of God. And he was, he was a church kid. You want to know what John Mark was? Uh, sometime on Sunday morning or Sunday night, look around at our church brimming with little kids running around throwing toys and jumping off things and wrestling each other and being crazy. And, uh, you know, it's easy sometimes. And some people do. Some people get really put out with that kind of stuff. Uh, as a pastor, I've always said, listen, if you want to go to a place where the hymnals are always in perfect condition, where there's no toys spread around and everything's always spotless and it's good and quiet and demure and reverent, go to a funeral home because that's how a funeral home is. And not to say that we shouldn't be good stewards of the house that God has given us, and not that we shouldn't try to uh, teach and instill in our young people reverence and, and uh, how to behave themselves in order in the house of God. Certainly we should. Uh, but we do need to recognize that, you know, uh, if you have an ox in the crib, every now and again the stall is going to have to be clean. That's just the price you pay for having an ox. And when you got young ones, sometimes it can be a little bit of a headache. Uh, but that's the price you pay for having a living, breathing, vibrant church with young people in it. When you see those young people underbound being crazy, mine included, uh, you might think of John Mark. Because John Mark was that kid that was running around the church house. It was just always there in the background. He grows up and he goes on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. And about halfway through, he gets scared. He gets nervous. He turns around and he quits and he goes back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs. Later on, when that missionary journey is over and Paul and his uncle Barnabas, Mark's uncle Barnabas, were getting ready to go back out, the Bible says that the contention was so sharp between them because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again. And Paul said, no. Paul said, I'm not taking him. He's a quitter. We're not going to get halfway down the road only to have him bail out on us again. It's not going to happen. The contention was so sharp that they parted ways. And it would appear that that did a lot to put a stain upon Mark's testimony for many years. It would seem as though Mark sort of carried that shame with him. Somewhere along the line, reconciliation was made. And when we read this, we cannot help but notice that now Paul speaks in the most tender terms about John Mark. Later on, he tells Timothy to bring John Mark with him. And this is why, because he's profitable to the ministry. It's good to know that we have a God of second chances. It's good to know that even when we give up and walk out and make mistakes and give you know, give ourselves over to the wrong thing. It's good to know we have a God of second chance. And in this verse, we cannot help but see that Mark has been embraced by Paul. He's been forgiven. He's been given a second chance. And now he's being endorsed by the Apostle Paul. He says, listen, you've already, I've written to you about John Mark. And I've told you uh, his history. I've given you his testimony. I've given you all the information 
that you need. And when He comes, if He comes, you receive Him. He's not going to hurt you. He's not going to do you damage. He's gotten His life straightened out. He's on the right track. He's faithful. He's profitable in the ministry. So when we read about Mark, we think about the forgiven man. We're told about a man named Justice. Uh, Paul says his name is Jesus and his uh, surname, he's called Justice. It reminds us that the name Jesus was a common name back then. That is a gentle reminder to us that our Lord, when he walked this earth, he took a common name and he made it extraordinary. Now it's a name above every name when it's mentioning the Lord Jesus. Uh, but it was a common name. It was the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament name Joshua. But Justice went by the name of Justice. He didn't go by the name of Jesus. Maybe, like Peter, not feeling himself worthy to be crucified in the way that the Lord was, was crucified upside down by his own request. It could be that this man, Jesus, Justice, demurred whenever people used the name Jesus and preferred the name Justice. We don't really know a lot about him. What we do know is two things. One, we know that if his name is any indicator, he was a righteous man. He was a just man. We also know that he was a Jewish man. Uh, He is of the circumcision, Paul says. And this was a way of saying he is a Jewish individual. The commentator calls him the friendly man. And the reason being because in juxtaposition to how the circumcision normally treated Paul, uh, evidently justice was a friend to him. He uh, he, He was a fellow laborer, a fellow worker, is how Paul describes him in verse number 11. So Mark and Justice are the two Jewish individuals in this list. And they, Paul says, along with the others, are fellow workers under the kingdom of God. When Paul says they've been a comfort to me. He then, in verse number 12 and 13, mentions a man that we're a little bit familiar with, whose name is Epaphras. Epaphras, it would seem, was the pastor at the church at Colossae. Uh, it would appear that he was, as the pastor, felt compelled to be the one to go to Rome and to find Paul and to report to him what was going on at the church at Colossae, and to describe to him the onslaught of false doctrine and heresies that were becoming so pervasive. And as we read this, we cannot help but think that in this moment, Epaphras had done something that allowed him to not be able to go back home. Because all that Paul says is that he saluteth you. He came from you, but he's not coming back to you. One person supposed, and this is supposition, it's assumption, But uh, suppose that part of the way that Paul was allowed to receive so many visitors while he was under house arrest is that they themselves would put themselves under the yoke of of Roman authority and allow themselves to be imprisoned with Paul for a duration of time, whether in concert with the officials or maybe of their own doing. We don't know if that's true. But we do know this, that Epaphras is not a free man at this point. He cannot go back. Uh, He's still there with Paul. And Paul says three things about Epaphras. Uh, first off, he mentions his practical fervor. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, and then he calls him this, a servant of Christ. The word means a slave, a bond slave, a servant. And it denotes the fact that Epaphras is a man who has a very practical commitment to the believers at Colossae. He didn't consider himself to be of different class and of different, uh, you know, station in life. In fact, when Paul writes about him, he says, he's one of you. He doesn't view himself as being someone sitting on a pedestal up here and lording over these people below him. He's one of you. He's somebody. He is a Colossian at heart. He loves you. He cares about you. He's interested in you. And he has placed himself under the yoke of being a servant of Christ that he might see you strengthened and fortified in the faith. He mentions then his prayerful fervor. 
He says, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Man, that's something. I mean, for Paul to say that about somebody, Paul was a prayer warrior. But he said, man, you ought to hear your pastor pray for you. You ought to hear how Epaphras loves you. When he's here, I mean, day and night, he's lifting you up to the throne room of grace. And, you know, maybe I'll admit to you, when you preach expositionally through the Bible, sometimes I'm doing more preaching at me than I am you. But all of us ought to take it as our responsibility to labor fervently in prayer for one another. And especially for people that God has given us a door of utterance with and a ministry with, we ought to take them as our responsibility in the matter of prayer as we would any member of our church. He's laboring in prayer. And then notice his personal fervor. He says, For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. I see two things about this. One, I see that there is a personal commitment here. He loves you. He's interested in you. His heart is for you. But then I see that there is sort of a panoramic commitment here. Because it wasn't just a little town, a little hamlet of Colossae, but Epaphras had made that whole Wolf River Valley his his parsonage, his, his responsibility, his field. And he felt a commitment not just to Colossae, but to those at Laodicea just down the road and to those at Hierapolis the other direction down the road. This is somebody that is taking the work of God and making it his own. And he is not looking to fulfill his obligations He's looking to utilize every opportunity that he can find. So he mentions Epaphras. Verse number 14, he mentions a name we're very familiar with, and that's the name Luke. And the commentator calls him the famous man. Luke, of course, gave us two books, or the Holy Spirit did so through the pen of Luke, gave us two books of our New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. When we think of Luke, we think of him in three capacities. We think of him, first off, as being a healer. He's described here as the beloved physician. Paul, by this time in his life, required probably constant medical care. Uh, If you read through everything Paul had been through, the times he'd been stoned, the times he'd been beaten, the times he had had to be deprived of food, the times he'd been shipwrecked, and add to that his just common maladies. He had evidently some thorn in the flesh that would not depart from him, that was given by God, uh, that the power of Christ might rest upon him. Most people believe it was probably an eye condition or disease. But by the end of Paul's life, it's apparent that he's in terrible, terrible health. Luke is somebody that devoted his time to being Paul's companion in travels, but also to being his personal physician. Uh, When the Bible uses the term comfort, earlier Paul says, he's a comfort to me. It's a term from which we get uh, some medical terms, and it denotes a soothing balm. That's what Luke was for the Apostle Paul. He, He sought to alleviate any pain, any troubles, any worries that Paul may have had. And he saw himself as being the healer in Paul's life. Not only that, but he's a helper. All through Paul's missionary journeys, we have the book of Acts, and we have such great detail about Paul's missionary journeys because Luke was there with Paul. He no doubt got much eyewitness testimony for the early days of the New Testament church at Jerusalem. But Paul's missionary journeys have great detail in them, and that's because Luke was always there with him. He was a fellow helper in the Ministry, And then we can't help but think of them as a historian. Because we know what we know about the church and about early missions and about the spread of the gospel. Because a doctor took a pen in hand and scribbled out some probably barely legible notes, if he was like any other doctor. Uh, but in, in those barely legible notes was the God-breathed inspiration of the Holy Ghost. 
And he recorded for us in meticulous detail. And you can see this in his nature. When you read through the book of Luke, when you read through the book of Acts, you can tell it's a medical mind recording things. When you think, for instance, he records the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when you look at the way that he records the, the compassion and tender care that the Samaritan uh, you know, gives to the, the Jewish individual that was beaten and left for dead, you can just tell a doctor's writing. He, he gave meticulous detail to these things. And here at this moment in Paul's life, he's not left his side. We have no reason to believe that Luke ever left his side, but stayed with him. Luke, the beloved physician. We have sort of a cloud begin to hover over the text for just a moment. And it's in the end of verse number 14 when a man by the name of Demas is mentioned. Demas is mentioned three times in your Bible. Once, he's described as a fellow laborer. Here, he's described merely as being present. And finally, in the book, in the epistle to the church of Thessalonica, he's described as having walked away. So what we find is that Demas is described first as being fervent, then as being flat, then as forsaking. Can we not see in that a, a very stark warning? The commentator described this scene and almost mentioned Demas's name being brought up as though it was like Christ offering Judas the sop at the Last Supper. Just one more tender extension of compassion, one more gentle rebuke. He couldn't say anything more about Demas, probably without having to lie for him. But he, he, he loathed to say anything less. He didn't want to just ignore that he was there. Paul loved Demas. He cared for him. Sadly, Demas chose the wrong path. He's the floundering man. And for him, at this moment in his life, there's merely nothing more to say than that he was present. Let me tell you something. When the only thing that anybody could say about you as it relates to the work of God and the house of God is just that you're present and nothing more, you're that far from turning and walking away. We need to be that Demas in the first place, fervent, serving, involved, engaged, active, plugged in. Because when we become the person that's just present, it won't be long till we can't even answer present anymore. Verse 15 and 16, he mentions a man by the name of Nymphus. He says this, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. When this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. A sermon to be preached here, and maybe before too long, I don't know, uh, that gives a tale of two cities. For these two little places, the, the places that sat nuzzled in this valley beside this river could not have wound up more differently. The church at Colossae, because they heeded the letter that Paul wrote them, they evidently cleaned house, and they evidently got things straight and settled. And until an earthquake destroyed everything in that valley, they stood strong. The church at Laodicea, though, by the next generation, John writes about them and describes them as being a lukewarm place, as being wretched and blind and miserable and naked, though they were the most prosperous church that ever was mentioned in the New Testament. And the only belief that is ever mentioned by name from the church at Laodicea is a man by the name of Nymphus. Even at Laodicea, God had a witness. God had somebody standing outside the door with Christ knocking. Could it be that Nymphus, that his voice was the very knocking of God at that place? I don't know. But I know that as he's mentioned to us, two things are brought into the forefront. First is the local ministry that he had. 
says the church which is in his house. So he was active. He had a church in his house. This may have been the very uh, sort of seed of the church at Laodicea. I don't know. But think about the fact that whenever Paul talks about the church at Laodicea, it begins in the most humble of ways. And it's a reminder to you and I that we may be walking in humility now, but we could be walking in peril and danger ere too long if we allow ourselves to be lifted up in pride and to rely too much upon this world's goods and this world's benefits, as the church at Laodicea did. Describes his local ministry. There was a church in his house. But then notice his larger ministry. I I wrote it this way. The first describes the church in his house. The second describes the church in his haunts. Because evidently he, like Epaphras, went all up and down that valley seeking to minister and seeking to win people to Christ and seeking to make a difference. We're told in verse number 16, uh, there's nothing missing from your Bible. We have exactly what God wants us to have. But don't you ever wonder sometimes what happened to that letter to Laodicea? Did it make it there? I think it probably did. No doubt Tychus was carrying it. If the church at Colossae got their letter, no doubt the church at Laodicea got theirs. Somewhere in the midst of it all, they didn't heed the warning of Paul. Somewhere in the midst of it all, they turned away from the merciful caution that God had given them through the apostles' pen, and it led to their destruction. Nymphus is described as a fruitful man, but we find that not everybody took advantage of the fruitfulness of his ministry. We're told about a man in the next verse, verse 17, named Archippus. He'll be mentioned again in the letter to Philemon, and it would appear as though Archippus was Philemon's son. He is described here uh, as having a ministry. In the book of Philemon, he's described as a fellow soldier. And what it appears, at least to some degree, is that this was the order of events, that Epaphras leaves and he goes to Rome to find Paul, and very likely he left Archippus, who has a ministry he's received from the Lord. That ministry was probably the watch care of the church at Colossae. He probably functioned as an interim pastor in the absence of Epaphras. And now, whenever... Uh, word has gotten back to Colossae that Epaphras is not going to be coming home. Archippus has gone from being a stand-in to being the main guy. And he's received a ministry from the Lord. And Paul writes to this young man and he urges him and he charges him to take advantage of the open door that God's given and to stand up under the burden that God has placed upon him. Notice the remembered gift of his ministry. He says, you've received this ministry in verse 17 of the Lord or in the Lord. And it's a reminder that the things that we do for God, we've been given by God and entrusted from God that we might do them for God. Anything that we're doing for the Lord, ultimately we're not doing for anybody else, we're doing for Him. And the moment we really galvanize that in our mind and spirit, that I'm not doing this thing for men's applause or appreciation, I'm doing it to please the Lord, then we fortify ourselves against pride and discouragement. So he encourages this young man to remember that this ministry, it didn't fall out of nowhere into his lap. It was granted him from God, and he needs to treat it with the reverence that it's due. Then notice the guarding of his ministry. He says, take heed, take heed, guard it. It's a precious thing. Every opportunity we have to serve God is a precious opportunity. And then notice the growth that is needed in this ministry. He says, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Paul literally says, fill her up. Fill her up. Don't leave any empty spots in it. Fill it up. Pour yourself into the work of God. And don't allow yourself to be mediocre. Fill it up. 
and use every opportunity that you have for the Lord. There's one more man mentioned in verse number 18, and that's Paul, the fettered man. It says, The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. I like this. The commentator described this letter as closing with the rattling of Paul's chains. He wants to remind the church at Colossae that as he writes this to them, he's writing this to them as someone that knows what it is to pay a cost for serving the Lord. This is not the hollow admonition of somebody sitting in a totally uh, risk-free environment. This is somebody that's suffering for the cause of Christ. And he wants them to remember that there's a cost to serving God, but that in that, his bonds are not the bonds of, of Rome. His bonds are the bonds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the work that God has given him to do is worth everything that it's cost him. So ends the letter to the church at Colossae. And we're given an introduction in those verses to a little memo that's called the letter to, the, to Philemon. Turn over to the book of Philemon with me. Twenty-five verses. It's immediately after the book of Titus. And as you turn there, I want, if I can, to read this to you. Philemon was a prosperous slave owner who lived at Colossae. He had a slave named Onesimus, who, having helped himself to some of Philemon's wealth, had run away to bury himself amid the multitudes who thronged the streets and slums of Rome. Rome, a cosmopolitan melting pot, provided a convenient hiding place for anyone wishing to disappear from public view. There, Onesimus was sure that he would be safe. Instead, he was destined to be saved. In some way, his path crossed that of the Apostle Paul, a man hungry for souls. Paul promptly led him to Christ and proposed returning him to his master, also a Christian, who had been introduced to Christ by Paul. Because Paul had never been to Colossae, as far as we know, the likelihood is that Philemon had been saved sometime during Paul's remarkably successful evangelistic crusade at Ephesus. Now remember, Ephesus is only 40 miles down the road. And for months, the Lord was doing a work in Ephesus. Probably Philemon went to find out what it was all, the, all about. And there met Paul and was one to Christ. Naturally, Onesimus must have been very much alarmed at the prospect of being sent back to his master, who understandably could be expected to deal with Onesimus with the utmost severity. The law was harsh. Mutilation or scourging would be the least of the terrors that would loom in Onesimus' mind. Crucifixion or even some more horrible death was very likely. But Paul preached no cheap gospel. It was the clear duty of Onesimus to return to Philemon and throw himself on his mercy. Perhaps at this point in his talk with Onesimus, Paul rattled his own chains. A bribe to Felix years ago would have secured his release. Instead, he was awaiting the alarming uncertainties of an appearance before Nero simply because he had done what was right. Now Onesimus must return to Philemon. It was his duty. He could not begin his new life in Christ by ignoring a debt that he had accrued in his unconverted days. What kind of salvation would that be? To still the fear of his new convert, Paul offered to write a covering letter to Philemon. And so he did. It is in our Bible to this day as the epistle to Philemon. Paul's polemic against slavery and the Holy Spirit's answer to all social ills. It's a marvelous little memo full of tact, persuasion, personal glimpses, and Christian grace. No Roman general planning the best way to subdue a city could have covered all the approaches with more meticulous care than did Paul when laying siege to Philemon's soul. To understand the nature of the book of Philemon, Philemon is the master of Onesimus. He evidently, it was his house in which the church at Colossae met. 
Onesimus had ran away from Philemon and it would appear had stolen some money from Philemon when he left. He had ran to Rome seeking to disappear, but there the grace of God pursued him and the providence of God found him. And he was one to Christ. And now Paul, imagine the surprise when Onesimus describes his situation and here's the name Philemon. Uh, Paul thinking, this has to be the will and, and, and the providence of God. God had to have coordinated this. And so he challenges Onesimus to do the right thing and to go back home and to put himself back into subjection to Philemon. But he does not do this without also accompanying Onesimus with a letter to Philemon, knowing that Paul would be in a position to appeal for Onesimus better than anyone else could. This is a fascinating book. It's fascinating for a lot of reasons. You know, the way that God deals with slavery, which was a reality at that time in the Roman world. Paul would have been familiar with slavery, but more so of, of the Hebrew kind. And the Hebrew kind of slavery was more of an indentured servitude. There were, there were checks and balances that God had built into that system to ensure that slaves would not be abused, would not be overworked, and could not be treated as chattel and as property. For instance, every seven years a slave was permitted to go out free. And the thought behind that was that every single person belonged to the Lord. They didn't belong to anybody else. So Hebrew slavery was very different from Roman slavery. Roman slavery was very much, when we think of slavery, the kind of slavery that we're familiar with. It was owning another individual, them having no rights, and they as your property, you being allowed to do with them whatsoever you please. And when Paul writes to Philemon, it's fascinating, it's revolutionary, the way that he addresses Philemon and the things that he asks of Philemon. I mean, stop and think about this for just a moment. I want to see if I can find this in my notes here. One can study the book such as Philemon in numerous ways. For instance, we could examine the epistle through the eyes of Philemon himself. With Philemon, the dominant issue would be slavery, which was so much taken for granted by the world of his day. The Romans had conquered most of the known world and had reduced the whole population to bondage. Some slaves were exceedingly valuable, being artists, scholars, and highly skilled craftsmen. Others were little more than beasts of burden, and all were useful as a source of cheap labor. From the standpoint of a slave owner, to upset such an entrenched social institution was unthinkable. Paul's letter at first reading must have come to a shock, as a shock to Philemon. He might, as an unusual act of appreciation for some singular and extraordinary service, set a slave free. But free a runaway slave like Onesimus? Paul's demand was revolutionary. And it's a reminder to us that the Bible's answer to social ills ultimately is not found in politics. It's found in grace. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I I believe there are times when, as citizens, it is incumbent upon us to take up arms to defend our God-given rights. I'm not suggesting that the Christian should have no voice in the political arena. Certainly, we have rights just like anybody else does as citizens. But we do need to constantly be reminded that this world is conquered, not by the sword, but by the gospel. And we reach people not through... Political pressure, we reach them through the transformative grace of God. And that is one of the great themes of this little memo to Philemon. He didn't have to deal with the social ill and evil of slavery. All he had to tell Philemon is, listen, he's your brother in Christ. Treat him like one. Treat him like one. And giving the exact same identical advice to Onesimus was all that was needed to reconcile all of the ugliness and all of the risks and all of the abuses that were so prevalent in this social environment, in this social construct. 
So we're only going to make it through the first seven verses, and it's not going to take us long. Because I just want to point out a few things. The commentator made the statement, man, I, I love it, when he said the very last line, no Roman general planning the best way to subdue a city could have covered all the approaches with more meticulous care than did Paul when laying siege to Philemon's soul. When you think about everything Paul says to Philemon, each one is a little block that he's building a wall. He's hemming Philemon in and hedging him in because he's getting ready to ask him to do the unthinkable. To take that runaway, rebellious, wicked slave and servant and to receive him as the Apostle Paul himself. And so in order to do that, we see, and there's three basic sections to the book of Philemon that we're going to look at. The first one is a cautious approach. Paul doesn't write to Philemon and say, all right, buddy, this is how it's going to be. Instead, he respects the authority that Philemon has, but uses the grace of God as sort of a means to bring about the will of God in Philemon's life. I told you we weren't going to spend much time talking about Onesimus back in the letter to the church at Colossians. But suffice it to say that the first first shot across the bow in this endeavor is when in this very public epistle that's going to be read to everybody, he calls Onesimus one of you, a beloved brother, a faithful servant. He sure wasn't a faithful servant when he left. But oh, what the grace of God can do in a person's life. Now the Lord had changed him. And before he ever writes to Philemon, he wants to let everybody know. They know who Onesimus is. Colossae was not a big town. They knew who Onesimus was. And certainly everybody in that little church would have known who he was. And imagine the gasps when he walks through the door. And imagine the gasps. Imagine the look. Imagine the jaws dropping to the floor. When Tychicus comes to the end of that letter from Paul and he says, Onesimus, a beloved brother, a faithful servant, who is one of you. They're getting ready to hear a miracle of the grace of God. And we find the inner workings of it in the letter to Philemon. So I want you to notice four simple things here. Notice first off the greetings in verse 1 and 2 of the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Again, you might say, well, what significance do we have in just these mere boilerplate opening words? Well, first off, he mentions who these words were from. And first, he mentions Paul and his condition. He is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, he is doing things to instill in Philemon's mind certain ideals. And Paul says, Philemon, you understand that right now I'm sitting in Rome because that's what the Lord expects of me. Right now I have chains around my wrists and feet because that's what the Lord expects of me. I don't have the choice to do what I want to anymore. I don't have the liberty to live as Paul desires anymore. I am a prisoner not of Rome, though it may be their chains around my arms and and legs. It's the chains of the Lord around my heart and my soul. And He has arrested my will, and now He is the governor of my life. I can't do as I please anymore. You know why, Philemon? Because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, and I've been asked to do some hard things because I'm a Christian. But here I sit in chains because that's what the Lord expects of me. We see Paul and his condition, then Paul and his companion. He mentions Timothy. Timothy was present in Ephesus. And we can only make the assumption that uh, his name would have carried weight with Philemon. Maybe Timothy and Philemon had a very, very close 
bond and a very, very close relationship. But if we don't want to use our imagination to derive any application, I think we can at least note this, that Paul says, here I am in this hard circumstance in life, but I'm investing in the life of a younger person because that's what it takes if we're going to see the gospel of Christ perpetuated and if we're going to see lives changed. You see what I'm getting at? (laughs) I don't know if Philemon got it as he read just those first opening words, but Paul's saying, look what I'm doing, Philemon. I'm in a hard situation, but I'm still doing what the Lord expects of me, and I'm still investing in this young person's life. By the way, here's your runaway slave, this young man Onesimus. What are you going to do with him? Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, Timothy, our brother. And then notice who these greetings were for. And he lists three people. He says, Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. He mentions Philemon and his family. Notice how Paul claims it. He says, our, our dearly beloved, our fellow laborer, our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Paul had a way of endearing himself to people. But I think there's something bigger and broader going on here. I think what Paul's getting at is he's reminding him, hey, we're all a part of the family of God now. You're, you're my beloved brother. I'm your beloved brother. And he's getting ready. He's not approached it yet, but he's getting ready to introduce Philemon to another beloved brother that Philemon do very well, but never as a saint, only as a slave. So he mentions his ownership of them, the intimate relationship he has with them. Notice not only how he claims them, but how he commends them. And he mentions all three of them. Philemon the saint, we know who Philemon is. Aphia, uh, he calls her beloved. A lot of people have taken that. It has connotations, the idea of a sister. Uh, and I think what Paul's probably doing here is he's using a very, um, I don't want to say formal. It's not a formal. It's an intimate term. But it is a very, very um, filial term. Uh, he, he's being very respectful, and he's talking about Aphia as being a sister in Christ, our beloved Aphia. Very likely, Aphia was probably Philemon's wife. And then, this young man we've already heard of, Ara, uh, I'll get it, Archippus, I about said Aristarchus. Archippus, who is a fellow soldier. Here he gives him a glowing commendation. In the public epistle, he sort of, he doesn't chide him, but he admonishes him. And he encourages him to stay strong. But here in this private letter, he wants Archippus to understand that he doesn't see him as being lesser, as being a subordinate, as being second tier. He's a fellow soldier along with him. And he has a responsibility to that church that is in their house. Then notice Philemon and his fellowship at the end of the verse. He says, I'm writing not just to you, but I'm writing to all of them. But I'm writing to all of them by way of writing to you. What discretion Paul has here. I mean, what, what wisdom he has. He understands he's getting ready to ask a hard thing of Philemon. He understands that he's getting ready to ask him something. It's going to take a great deal of humility on Philemon's part. And he has enough discernment and discretion to not ask him that in front of everybody, but to give him the grace and the opportunity to make this decision on his own. It's a reminder of this, that listen, we can be tough and still have tact. We can be tough with people and still have tact and still be respectful. I think that's what Paul's do. Not only uh, do we see in this verse the greetings, but notice the grace that's mentioned in verse number 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Again, this is the traditional greeting that Paul gave. Grace, of course, speaking to the Gentiles. Peace, shalom, speaking to the Jews. But it's more than just boilerplate language. Because, I mean, three verses in, Paul has already brought up this monumental, this mountain of a word, grace. The commentator gave an illustration that, man, I really like. He described as a, a man was sitting in his living room and he heard a noise out in his driveway. And when he looked out the window, he saw a young man breaking in and stealing his car. And by the time he got out the front door, he could only see the taillights going down the road. And he calls the police and he reports his car is stolen and goes and sits back down and waits, wondering if he'll hear anything. A few hours later, the police call him and say, sir, we recovered your car. Not only that, we recovered the young man that stole it. We're down at the station. Could you come in? And we're going to get all this sorted out. The man walks into the station and he has three options. He can say, book this young man, put him in jail. He did something wrong and he must pay for it. That's justice. That's what we should have got. God should have said, you're a criminal, you're a thief, you're a reprobate, you deserve hell. He should have sent us to hell. He could say, give him justice, book him. He could give him forgiveness. He could say, you know what, officer, nothing's hurt, there's no harm, there's no foul. I don't want to see this young man's life ruined. You know what, let's just forget about the whole thing. That's forgiveness. Aren't you glad the Lord forgave you? But there's a third option. Imagine what would happen if that man said, walked over to the young man and said, you know, if you needed a car that bad, you should have just asked. I got two sitting in my driveway. I'll tell you what, why don't I just give you that car? And why don't I first, before I give you the keys, let me take it down here to the service station. Let me fill it up. Let me make sure it's got everything that it needs. And let me just give you this car. If you need it that bad, you take it. I got another one sitting in the driveway. The first is justice. Give him what he deserves. The second is mercy. Don't give him what he deserves. The third is grace. Give him what he doesn't deserve. Give him the car. Give him the whole thing. That's what God did for us. He didn't just forgive us. Man, he gave us everything that Christ had. He certainly didn't send us to hell when we deserved it, but he didn't just forgive us. He exalted us. He set us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He made us a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God. And it's no accident that this word grace crops up this early in this little epistle. But grace is only effectual in as much as it can be paired with peace. Peace denotes that the war is over, that the hostility is done. And remember, these are all, I, I hesitate to use this word, but they're almost subliminal things that Paul is putting into Philemon's mind. The word peace, the hostility's over, Philemon. The fighting's done. You're not at war with anyone. You used to be a rebel, Philemon. You used to be a runaway. You used to be a thief. You used to be a reprobate. But by the grace of God, you now enjoy the peace of God. And by the way, Philemon, I sent this by the way of Onesimus. What are you going to do with him? We find grace mentioned here. Then gratitude is mentioned in verses 4 and 6. He said, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast towards the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. So again, Paul sort of, he's planting each of these things. He mentioned when he prayed for Philemon. He said, I pray for you always. You're always on my heart. What I'm about to ask you is not coming from someone that never gives a thought to you. From the moment that Onesimus walked into my jail cell, I started praying for you. Because I knew what it was going to take for you to be able to respond in the Christian way. 
He describes why he prayed for Philemon. Because of his love for the Savior. And again, each of these, you almost wonder at what point Philemon started looking sideways at Onesimus as he read this. Paul says, I want you to remember, Philemon, you told me you love the Lord. You told me you love Him with everything. You told me He's the most important thing in the world to you. Do you really love Him? You remember what He said, Philemon. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're getting ready to put that love to the test, Philemon. Let's see how you do with it. His love towards the Savior, but also His love towards the saints. He said, I want to remind you, one of the things, Philemon, I've always loved about you is that you love everybody. If somebody's saved, they're your brother in Christ. Man, you don't care what they've done. You don't care where they've been. You don't care how they've wronged you. You don't care the mistakes they've made. I've just always, Philemon, I've always loved about you how you just love all of God's children. By the way, here's Onesimus, your runaway slave that I won to Christ. He's paving the way for reconciliation. And then notice what he prayed for Philemon. He says, I'm praying for you for two things. One, for the outward flowing of your Christian life. He said, I'm praying that the communication of thy faith may become effectual. In other words, he said, I'm praying that your faith is going to be put into action. I'm praying that you will act on your faith and do what you know to be right in every way, every day. Now, he's not even mentioned Onesimus yet. He's not even brought up his name. But he's wanting Philemon to understand that he's been praying for him that he would have a real, tangible, meaningful faith. Then not only that, but for the inward flourishing of his Christian life. He says that it may become effectual. How? By the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, I'm praying for you that your faith would reach out and touch the world. And I know that will happen when people can see Christ in you. When they acknowledge the working of God in your life. Philemon, you can give all the money to charity you want. You can talk all the talk that you want. But when people see God in you, Philemon, that's what's going to make the difference. I'd remind you that God is never more evident in our life than when we're doing the, the hard, right thing. It's easy to do the right thing when it's easy. And it's always easy to do the wrong thing. But when people see us doing the hard, right thing, thing, that's when they see God in our life. Then notice verse 7, and we're done, the gladness that he mentions. He says, for we have great joy and consolation in thy love. We've been sitting around the jail cell, me and Epaphras, me and Aristarchus, before Tychicus and Onesimus left, we're sitting around, Mark was with us, and when we heard about how you love the other believers at Colossae, man, we just rejoiced. We were reminded that the cultists, they haven't gotten to everybody. We were reminded there's still some people standing strong, that the devil's not won this fight, that there's still some people at Colossae that are doing the right thing. You almost imagine there's an implication here, so you better be careful, Philemon, because the devil's after you. You're encouraging other people. So much rides on your testimony, Philemon. So much rides on the way you live your Christian life. We're glad when we heard about your love. But then notice what he says, verse number 7, because why? Because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. He wants to remind Philemon that he has a good testimony. And he's getting ready to have to make a hard decision that's going to affect that testimony one way or the other. It's either going to bury it or it's going to bolster it. It's either going to advance that testimony or it's going to annihilate it. 
And he needs to recognize that there's a great cost. Listen, we never gain greater ground than when we do that hard right thing. The hard things in life. And there are a lot of things that are not easy. This was a hard thing. No doubt there were a lot of hard feelings between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus has come back and he's just betting on the grace and mercy of God. And he's betting on the love of his master. And don't you, again, we read it with, in retrospect, we read it and make the assumption, and I think rightly so, that Philemon did the right thing. We have 2,000 years of history behind us, and these are names that are far removed from our everyday life. But for Philemon in that moment, there was probably, it was very much in doubt whether or not he was going to do the right thing. Thankfully, I believe, you might believe differently, but I believe he chose to do the right thing. And I believe through doing the hard right thing, God was able to do something in the life of a runaway slave, now turned redeemed saint, and was able to prosper the church at Colossae and continue to work and bless it. Paul's wanting to remind Philemon just how precarious the situation is. And we need to be reminded that, listen, the decisions we make, they affect more than just us. There's a whole body of believers that are going to be affected by the decisions that we make, by the choices that we make. I know, if you're a student... Of the Bible, if you're familiar with the book of Philemon, you love the beautiful imagery and picture of Paul being the mediator for Onesimus. Philemon, in many ways, representing God the Father. And maybe next week, if the Lord wills it, we'll get into some of that imagery. I'm glad that the Lord put my sins on Christ's account. I'm glad I was received as the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that God the Father did all that Christ asked and much more. I'm glad for all that. But let it not be lost on us the practical importance of this. That in our life, day by day, we have hard decisions. But we need to recognize that God has, in those hard decisions, given us great opportunities to make a difference in people's lives.